Open your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 13, verse 1. We're returning today to the Gospel of Matthew after taking a month break for our Christmas series. And we left off, if you remember, at the end of chapter 12. So my New Year's gift to you today is that we will be starting into a new chapter this month. So there you go. You're welcome. But since chapter 12 is so vital for understanding what we're going to see now in chapter 13, it's important that I jog your memory just for a bit before we dive into this new chapter. In chapter 12, Matthew began to document a growing resistance to the ministry of Jesus among the Jews, especially among the religious leaders. It began in a grain field, if you remember, with a law-breaking charge against the disciples that was actually a veiled accusation against Jesus himself. From there, conflict spilled over into the local synagogue where Jesus intentionally healed a man on the Sabbath with the result that the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Then Jesus cast a demon out of a man. But when the Pharisees heard about it, they publicly claimed he was doing these things by the power of Satan. Then Adding insult to injury, they demanded still more proof that Jesus was really from God rather than in league with Satan. But Jesus condemned this demand as unbelief, and he used it as proof that it was their hearts that were actually filled up with evil. He went on to call them and all the house of Israel like them an evil and adulterous generation. Now, we remember that a generation in the Semitic sense just means all who are alive at that moment in time. And and while this doesn't mean Jesus was writing off as lost every single Jew of his day, I do think he means that the vast majority of his own people would, in fact, reject him during his ministry. But again, all will not be lost. There is hope. Jesus indicates At the end of chapter 12, that even though most of the house of Israel, alive in his day, will reject him, there will yet be a household of faith. There will yet be those who receive him as their king. And in fact, in the verses just prior to our text today, he has just stretched out his hand toward those who are his disciples and indicated that they represent that remnant. They are his true household, the core group through whom his kingdom on earth is being established. And now we get to chapter 13. That day, that same day, we read in verse 1, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. You know, the introvert in me feels for Jesus. He has very little time alone. Does does that wear on him, I wonder? We know in his humanity that he gets tired, just like we do. So he sleeps. Is it possible then that in his humanity he also might want to sometimes be alone? Maybe that's why he goes out and sits beside the Sea of Galilee. But we also know that sitting down is the traditional posture for teaching. And so it could just be that it's getting stuffy in that house, filled with all those people, and Jesus wants some fresh sea air while he teaches. Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. In any case, he isn't alone for long. We read in verse 2, 
and great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. If Jesus goes out to the shore for a change of setting, maybe because, maybe because the crowd is getting too big for the house, now the crowd proves to be too big for him to teach from the shore as well. And so now he retreats at last to this boat. There's a tradition that all of this story takes place in a little inlet on the Sea of Galilee that's called the Cove of Parables. It's about, a one, it's about one and a half miles southwest of Capernaum, which is Jesus' current base of operations. And apparently it's, a, it's the perfect spot for giving speeches. Apparently the, the land there forms a horseshoe shape around the cove that slopes down to the water like a natural amphitheater. The acoustics have actually even been tested by a team of Israeli scientists and found to be so good it's agreed that a very large crowd could have heard a man speaking from a boat even without any other means of amplification. But does Jesus speak to them from this boat just for the practical purpose of better acoustics? Well, maybe. But maybe there's another reason too, a symbolic one. And here I can't help but be reminded of the church scene from Herman Melville's classic Moby Dick. There, Father Mapple climbs up a rope ladder in a way that makes it seem more like he's climbing aboard a ship than climbing into a pulpit. And in fact, that's exactly what it's meant to look like. We're told in that book that the pulpit's paneled front was in the likeness of a ship's bluff bows, and the Holy Bible rested on a projecting piece of scrollwork fashioned after a ship's fiddle-headed beak. Well, once he's up on his lofty perch, before he begins to preach, Father Mapple surprises a watching Ishmael by hauling the rope ladder up too onto that high platform with him, leaving him impregnable, Ishmael writes. I pondered some time without fully comprehending the reason for this, says Ishmael. There must be some sober reason for this thing. Furthermore, it must symbolize something unseen. Can it be then that by that act of physical isolation, he signifies his spiritual withdrawal for the time from all outward worldly ties and connections? Yes, I think it could be. I think it could be. I think Ishmael's exactly right. I think it's a picture of withdrawal, a picture of separation, a picture of distinction being made between Father Mapple and the rest of the world. And I think Melville gets his idea of the preacher in his little ship, straight from our text today. Jesus has just fleshed out a distinction between two groups of people in chapter 12, the evil generation on the one hand and Christ's true household on the other. And now suddenly that distinction is made visible. Jesus and his disciples on a boat and the great crowds standing on a beach. But as we'll see, it's more than just the boat that speaks of distinctions in our text today. The parable given here by Jesus, and even the method of teaching with parables itself, all of it communicates distinctions. And these are the three distinctions in particular we're going to see today. First, the distinction made between two different audiences. There are disciples 
and the crowds. Secondly, the distinction made between two different aims. The parables function both to reveal and to conceal. And finally, the distinction made between two different after-effects. The parables result in either the judgment of puzzlement or the blessing of enlightenment. But for now, a great crowd stands before Jesus, a great sea of faces waiting with expectation for him to speak. Look now at verse 3. And he told them many things in parables, it says. Now, quickly, before we rush on past that, I want you to note that it says Jesus speaks. He told them, the text says. It doesn't say he taught them. Speaking is not the same thing as teaching. And the reason has to do with what it is Jesus is telling them. We're told he tells them many things in parables. What are parables? Well, it's, it's a good time to ask that question because this is the first time in Matthew's gospel that that word is used. It's also an important question since this is a word that really it means something different to us today than it did when Matthew used it. Today we tend to think of parables as simple stories that help to illustrate a point. Generally, we think of parables as helpful things <clears throat> for understanding. And sometimes that's exactly what parables in the Bible do. Sometimes that's exactly how they function. Para means alongside. We, we think of parachurch right? An organization that works alongside a church. We think of a paralegal, someone who comes alongside a lawyer. And so the word parable itself just means to throw or to cast alongside in the sense of putting two things next to each other in order to compare them. And this usually looks like taking a common fact of life and putting it alongside some deeper reality in order to help explain it or illustrate it. But the application and use of the word parable in Matthew's day was, was much broader than just a, a simple illustration to make a point. The, the range of the word was closer to the Hebrew word masal, which, which covers proverbs, parables, um, fables, prophetic words, stories, even cryptic sayings, riddles. What, what that means is that Jesus can just give half the equation. Instead of putting two things next to each other to compare them, Jesus can just give half the equation. He can just give an example of something from everyday life without ever throwing alongside the deeper meaning for comparison, and it technically still qualifies as a parable. It's just the kind of parable that looks more like a riddle. And since that's what Jesus does in the next few verses, Matthew doesn't call it teaching. He just calls it talking. And he told them many things in parables, Matthew says. And what is the first parable Jesus tells them? Well, it's a parable about a field. Chapter 12 began with a conflict in a grain field of barley or wheat. And now chapter 13 begins with a parable that also seems to be set in a grain field. Look with me now at verses 3 through 9. And he told them many things in parables, saying, 
a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. The end. Let's close in prayer. I mean, because that's essentially what Jesus does. There is no teaching here. He simply gives the crowd an illustration without telling them what he's illustrating. And then he stops. He stops. Now, they understand everything Jesus has said so far, right? This is, this is an agricultural society, and Jesus is speaking the language of agriculture. For most of them, this stuff is their bread and butter. They get it. They all know about sowers and how they sow. As, as Jesus speaks, they picture the man with his sack of seed slung over his shoulder. Some believe they may even have been in sight of such a man working on a distant hillside. And Jesus simply points him out. Perhaps they watch him dipping his hand in and out of the sack as he walks the length of the land that will soon become a field. He dips his hand in and he, he brings it back out, flinging the seed near and far in one fluid practiced motion. The seed lands where it lands. They picture it falling to the ground as Jesus speaks, his, his descriptions calling to mind the many kinds of soil they've all seen. The hard pan of the beat down trail where, where the seed is never plowed under and, and away from hungry birds. The rock choked places, those those strips of ground where the bedrock rises nearly to the surface and makes the water run away quickly and makes deep roots impossible. Those trouble spots where the brambles seem to just spring up thick each year and choke out what grows despite your best efforts to root them out. And then the good earth, deep, dark, rich, and waiting. That soil that doesn't disappoint, but faithfully takes the seed you give it and yields an abundant harvest. They nod as Jesus speaks. They get it. They've all seen the things He describes. They murmur in approval at the mention of the great harvest, the 30, the 60, even the hundredfold return that calls to mind God's blessing of Isaac's great harvest in Genesis chapter 26. This Jesus can set a good story, they think to themselves. So far, so good. But then he stops. He gives the crowd an illustration without telling them what he's illustrating, and then he stops. He who has ears, let him hear, Jesus says. And then he stops. And now you can almost begin to hear the crowd start to mutter. Wait, that's it? What's this guy playing at? Is this what we came all this way to hear? Is this man mocking us? I imagine the disciples at this point becoming very uncomfortable. 
Since we know they got into the boat with Jesus in chapter 8, and since they do it again later in chapter 14, it just seems reasonable to me that they've gotten into the boat with Jesus this time as well, perhaps unsure of his intentions. You never know with Jesus. Maybe they thought he was going to go over again to the other side. But if they got in with him before he started talking, that would put them now in the same boat with him as he abruptly ends his parable and stands facing a crowd still waiting for the punchline. So that in the uncomfortable silence that follows, the eyes that are on him are now also on them. Sometimes it gets awkward to stand too close to Jesus. And so we can picture them now coming quickly to him and drawing him back from the pulpit bow of that boat, drawing him further back towards the stern for a quick private word. Look at verse 10. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? I always picture them whispering this question. Why do you speak to them in parables? And remembering our broader definition of parable from earlier, the question could simply mean, why are you talking to them in riddles? Why aren't you just spelling things out plainly for them? We've already pointed out that the boat signals an early distinction being made between two different groups. And Jesus' closing words to his parable have also confirmed this. He who has ears, let him hear, he's just said. Meaning there are those with ears, those who will hear him with understanding, and those without ears, those who will not hear and understand. Whatever else that means, it shows us there are two different audiences. And finally now, those two distinct audiences are are brought into focus by the answer Jesus gives his disciples. Why is he speaking in riddles? Look at verse 11. And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. The word for given here means to grant, to produce, to cause. We see now that the two different audiences are those who are disciples and those who are not. And we see now that the reason Jesus says he's teaching the crowds in parables is because the vast majority of those who hear him are not part of the audience meant to understand. And I think what Jesus says here is the key to understanding this whole text. Even before we get to his full interpretation of the parable, which we're going to look at next week, so you're going to have to come back. Even even before we get to his full interpretation of that parable, what he says here already begins to make sense of it. As R.T. France puts it, his explanation to his disciples is itself based on the content of the parable, the failure of some of the soil to receive the seed. Most simply put, and we'll cover this next week some more in, in depth, If the soil represents different responses to the seed of God's Word, what is the the primary reason Jesus says His disciples receive it and the crowd will fail to receive it? Jesus says it's because to some God has granted or caused the ability to know it. 
He's given the ears to understand it. And to others, God has not given this same privilege. He says, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. The secrets of the kingdom of heaven. The Greek word mysterion in this verse is translated by my ESV Bible. I don't know if you have something different. It's translated by my Bible as secrets. And I think that's a better translation than simply inserting the English word mystery here, as as I think some other Bibles have it. And I say that because in English, a mystery tends to be something that's difficult, if not impossible, for anyone to understand. But in the New Testament, mystery was a technical name for something that was only unintelligible to an outsider. But it was something that was crystal clear to the privileged people who had been initiated. In which case, the word secret in English, I think, is a better fit. To the crowd, to to those it has not been given to know, to those outside, as Mark's gospel literally calls them, the secrets of God's kingdom will be unknowable and unintelligible. But to the privileged ones, to the initiated, to those whom it has been given to know, God's word will be clear. The bottom line is that God doesn't give the same privileges to everyone. Well, there's a controversial statement. Especially in the times we live in where equity and equality seem to me to be the hot-button issues of the day. If, If God is just and fair, you might ask, why doesn't He give everyone exactly the same thing? If God is just and fair, why are there two different audiences in our text? Two different groups. And now we see not just two different audiences but also two different aims. What two aims do I mean? Well, one aim of using the technique of parables seems to be to make known the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, which Jesus is going to do for his disciples in just a moment, what we'll see next week. And the other aim of using this methodology of parables seems to be to keep those secrets from being known, which Jesus has just done by only giving half the equation to the crowd and then stopping. In other words, one aim seems to be to reveal and the other aim seems to be to conceal. But how can God not give everyone the same opportunities and privileges? Isn't that injustice? Sometimes it gets awkward to stand too close to Jesus. The truth is, friends, it's not injustice. It's non-justice. You would be right in one sense to say that justice isn't being done because we all deserve the same treatment and it's true that we're not all getting it. What we all deserve is to be treated equally as the sinful, rebellious creatures that we are and sentenced to immediate death and hell. That is justice for all. But instead of killing Adam and Eve outright, as they deserve, God makes a way to cover their nakedness in order to save some. Instead of drowning the entire human race 
as they deserve. God makes a way through an ark in order to save some. Instead of leaving all nations to the futility of idol worship like they deserve, God makes himself known to one family in order to save some. And on and on we could go as we look through the Bible until finally, instead of the justice of death and hell, we all deserve, God makes a way through His Son in order to save some. And that's not injustice. It's non-justice. It's mercy. And here, if you're still confused, it might be, it might be helpful to remember Kyle's definition of mercy from last week. Mercy is actually not getting what we deserve. Mercy is God, instead of justly condemning all, choosing to allow His retributive justice to pass over some, even one. And this this isn't injustice because God makes sure that the price for sin gets paid one way or another. Justice is satisfied by the death of Jesus for those God saves, And justice is satisfied by the deaths of the guilty themselves who aren't saved. It's never injustice that God saves some while others die to pay for their own sins. That any are spared at all is mercy. And we can never forget that. Guilty people have no right to demand mercy. All we have a right to is justice. We can plead for mercy, and in in fact, that's exactly what God urges us to do, but we cannot demand it. Instead, the Bible tells us mercy is God's prerogative. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, God says to Moses, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And one way we see God's mercy and compassion in our text today is that God gives some to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but he doesn't give that same privilege to everyone. And now verse 12 seems to amplify that truth, even even while leading into the third distinction of our text, a distinction between two different after effects. Look at verse 12. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not even what he has will be taken away. What what does this mean? Imagine a young man learning to play the piano. His biggest challenge is, is trying to read musical notes. He stares and he stares at the little black dots and all the funny lines. And he concentrates as hard as he can. And suddenly, in a flash of understanding, it all makes sense to him. In, in a moment of insight, the secret of musical notes comes to him. In the days and in the weeks and in the years that follow, more and more of what he sees in his music books click for him. The, his world of chopsticks and a hunting we will go, his, his world of alouette and, and baba black sheep, his world now expands. Soon he begins to play harder pieces. Songs with chords and key changes and complex rhythms. Soon he's able to build an abundance of knowledge and understanding and love of music on that first foundation of the basics. 
Now imagine another young man trying to learn to play the piano. He memorizes funny sentences like, all cows eat grass and every good boy does fine. But he doesn't really know why he's learning these things. He stares and stares at the little black dots and the funny lines, but they never form themselves into meaningful information that his brain can understand. Finally, with a shrug, he gives up and he, he never plays again. In the days and weeks and years that follow, even the little that he learned is lost. Well, no illustration is, is perfect, but the basic point is this. Once you have been given a foundation, building on it just follows. But without a foundation, nothing you build will last. Except that in our text, both that foundation as well as the spiritual growth that follows All of it must be a gift given by God. And that foundation Jesus is talking about is ultimately understanding and receiving the secret about himself and his kingdom. In Colossians 1, 26 and 27, Paul calls this the secret hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this secret, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. But this secret doesn't make sense to everyone. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 23 and 24, Paul says, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10, writing again about this secret wisdom of God, Paul says, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. This foundation of understanding must be a gift given by God, revealed to us through the Spirit. So too must all the abundance of spiritual growth that follows ultimately, it must all ultimately come from His hand. What does it mean that to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away? I think it means that for the one God will show mercy to, the parables will act to reinforce mercy and reveal the secret of Christ and His kingdom to Him. I think it means this will then be a foundation the Holy Spirit will build on the rest of his life. And I think it means that for the one God will show justice to, the parables will act to reinforce justice and keep the secret of Christ and his kingdom concealed. I think it means that even the veneer of godliness this person wears will eventually be exposed for the mask that it is. I think it means that to those guilty ones shown the mercy of God, the rich will get spiritually richer. And I think it means that to those guilty ones shown the justice of God, the poor will get spiritually poorer. For one group, the parables will have an after effect of enlightenment and abundance, and this will be a merciful blessing. And for the other group, the parables will have an after effect of puzzlement and impoverishment, and this will be a just judgment. This is why I speak to them in parables. Jesus says now in verse 13, 
because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Mark and Luke's Gospels both bring out the sense of judgment in these words even more clearly than Matthew. Mark says, For those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive. John's Gospel says something similar in another passage. He says, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see or claim to see may become blind. And now Jesus backs up the rightness of his use of parables in this way by quoting an Old Testament prophecy. Look with me now at verses 14 and 15. Speaking to his disciples about the crowd, he now says this, Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. This prophecy comes from Isaiah chapter 6. It's that famous chapter that begins with the death of King Uzziah, and swiftly moves to the great prophet finding himself suddenly in the throne room of God. There, in the presence of blinding holiness, Isaiah sees his sin and the punishment he deserves with more clarity than he's ever seen it before. So that in that moment, he falls to his face and he agrees with the just judgment of God he perceives and he screams out a curse of judgment on himself. Why? Because his lips are unclean and because his heart is unclean. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And he knows what all of this means. It means death for him. But God in his mercy spares Isaiah. He sends an angel to raise him back up. A blistering coal from the altar, that place where sin is dealt with through a sacrifice, is touched to his lips, cleansing him. Behold, the angel says to him, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then Isaiah hears God say, whom shall I send? And who will go out for us? Isaiah says, here I am, send me. And this is the assignment that God gives to him. The same verses quoted in our text today. God says to him, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. That's, that's the assignment Isaiah is given. How would you like an assignment like that? That's what he's given. It's an assignment to be a prophet of judgment. God has had enough of those who do not want to hear or see the truth. He's had enough. And now Jesus quotes this same passage to his disciples. 
And he says, the same situation has come about again in this evil generation that will not hear him or see him for who he is. Listen to his diagnosis of their spiritual condition. This people's heart has grown dull, he says. The word for dull can also be translated thick. You're like, how are those two words connected? Well, the two words are synonyms in the sense that a, a thick edge on a knife makes for a dull knife, right? They're synonyms in the sense that a, a thick callus of skin makes for dulled senses, dulled senses. In Adam, they have thickened their hearts toward God into hardness. With their ears, they can barely hear, Jesus says. Again, the idea is that their hearing has been dulled, has been blunted. It's heavy. It's difficult. In Adam, they've become all but deaf to God's voice. And their eyes, they have closed, Jesus says. This can literally be translated, shut down. They have shut down their eyes. In Adam, they have become willfully blind. Here, by quoting Isaiah, Jesus puts the responsibility for this judgment of confusion and dullness squarely on the shoulders of the people. They are getting what they deserve. This is justice. And again, while this doesn't, while this doesn't mean Jesus is writing off as lost every single Jew of his day, I do think he's referring to the vast majority of his, of his own people who do, in fact, reject him during his earthly ministry. Yes, God says, if these ones turn to me for mercy, I would heal them. I would save them. But they won't turn to me. They never will, is what he says. They won't. But all will not be lost in Isaiah's day, and all will not be lost in Jesus' day either. There is hope. When Isaiah hears his assignment, I don't think he was super excited. He gulps and he asks God this question, How long, O oh Lord? How long do I got to do this? I think what he's really asking is how extensive, is, how extensive will this judgment be? And in response, God tells him there will be a remnant. There will be a tenth. There will be some who, like Isaiah, will be shown mercy. And Jesus assures his disciples and assures us as well of the same thing at the end of chapter 12 and here again today. Some will be given to know. Even though most of the house of Israel alive in his day will reject him, there will yet be a household of faith. Those who will receive him as their king, there will yet be a remnant. And so what about you? What about you? If you've run from God all your life, will, will you be one of those who turn to Him today for mercy and receive Him as King? Or will you continue to stop up your ears and shut down your eyes and so dull your heart even more to His words? Now some of you might be thinking to yourself, what's, what's the point of even asking me that question? Some of you may be thinking, if God is the one who ultimately gives me understanding or not, why are you asking me? Why are you asking me? 
I'm asking you because anytime I look out over a great crowd, anytime I look out over a sea of faces, I'm not able to look into the hearts of the people there and tell who is who. I cannot do that. I can't see with human eyes who is to be a disciple and who is to be one of, as Mark calls them, those outside. And that's okay. I'm glad I don't know that information. That's okay. It's not my responsibility to know that. My responsibility is to sow the seed of God's Word and trust Him with the outcomes. That's my responsibility. And the point of me asking you, if you will turn to Jesus today, now that I've, now that I've sown the seed of His Word into your ears and into your hearts, the point of me asking is that it's through the hearing of the Word that God reveals Himself. It's through the hearing. The Word of God read and preached and taught is the very instrument. It's the very vehicle. It's the very means God uses to open eyes and open ears and soften up hearts and to bring His remnant people into the know. We all start out blind and deaf and hard-hearted. That is justice. But God is the one who opens eyes and ears. God is the one who removes a heart of stone and gives a heart of flesh. And He does this through His Word. So that making Him known through the Scriptures is always the Christian privilege, even while mercy is always the divine prerogative. And so again, I ask you, having heard the Word of God today, If you have never turned to Him for mercy before, will you do so now? Because if so, He will heal you. He will save you. You will leave this place forgiven and declared right with Him, set free by His mercy and privileged to know His Son. So that Jesus can then say to you, along with these disciples in the boat, look at verse 16, But blessed are your eyes, blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. To be blessed isn't a feeling you have. That word describes a state of existence in relationship to God in which a person is seen as fortunate and favored from God's perspective. Even when Even when you don't feel blessed, even when your circumstances don't feel great, negative feelings, absence of feelings, hard circumstances, none of these things can take away the blessedness of the one who exists in relationship with God. Fortunate are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. And now why in particular, why now does Jesus say in particular that those who know Him as the disciples do are fortunate. Look at verse 17. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and didn't see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. You know, so far the contrasts in our text have all been between the disciples who really hear and really see and the crowds who hear and see without understanding. But now Jesus brings up another, more heartwarming contrast. 
Now he contrasts the disciples with the faithful people of God from times past. Those who simply lived too soon to see all the promises of God come to fruition, who lived too soon to see and hear what is now available to this current generation. Think of Abraham, think of Moses, think of David and Isaiah, Amos and Hosea, think of all the patriarchs and all the prophets and what they would have given to be able to walk and talk with Jesus freely every day as these disciples got to do. Think of that. Well, friend, if, if you have been blessed to perceive the truth about Christ and His kingdom, you have that privilege too. You have that privilege too. And truly, as Jesus says, many of the prophets and the righteous people from the Bible would have longed to see what you see. They would have longed to hear what you hear. They would have longed to have a complete Bible there before them. To know how the story ended. You are so privileged. Truly. The word for truly that begins verse 17 is the Greek word amen. Does that sound familiar? There are times I miss David Haddon because he would startle me from time to time in the middle of a sermon with a very loud amen. amen. There it is. And without David's amens, I admit there are times I find myself wanting to prompt you all to say it. And so from time to time, I will. I'll say something and then I'll, I'll say amen. amen. And yeah, and of course, you're obligated at that point to, <laughs> to say amen as well. But as I heard someone else point out recently, it's interesting that Jesus never waits for somebody to respond with an amen. And Jesus never seems to prompt a crowd to say it either. Instead, Jesus frequently amens himself, even before he even makes his point. And that's what we see him do here today. For truly, I say to you, amen, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Friends, if you're here today and you know Jesus, if you have perceived the truth that he is king, if you have acknowledged his right to rule in your life, you have been blessed by God, whether you feel it or not. You have objectively been blessed by God. And your response should be one of incredulous wonder. If you are able to grasp and affirm the Bible in growing ways as you read it, as you hear it preached, as you, as you have it taught, you have been blessed by God. You have been blessed, whether you realize it or not. And your response should be grateful worship. Because it means the Holy Spirit is at work in you. And because God always finishes what He starts, it means God will continue to lead you through His Word into deeper understandings of who He is, into ongoing rhythms of repentance, and into a life that is increasingly consistent with His character.